A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to One Shots, where the lore hounds your guides to Jaguar Sharks, Old Custer, and the many worlds of West Anderson. I'm David, and I'm by myself on this intro today. John couldn't make it for various life reasons, but today to join me on talking about Asteroid City, the latest Wes Anderson movie, is Anthony from Properly Howard Film Reviews, which is our latest affiliate podcast. And you may know him from the Electric Boogaloo podcast over on the Bald Move Network, where he covers all of the books of George R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire. He and I are going to talk today about Asteroid City. We both saw it the other week. The first part of the podcast is going to be spoiler free. So you've got until the break to enjoy the conversation and just to have some general conversation about Wes Anderson and sort of what we felt about the movie. And then after the break, we're going to get into an in-depth conversation, looking at various themes and talking about Wes Anderson's style as it applies to this particular plot, the story. It's a good conversation. If you want to send us feedback, send emails to lorehounds at thelorehounds.com or visit us on our website at thelorehounds.com. Also, we've got a Discord server. There's a link in the show notes below. We've got a fun community over there. You can jump in, talk about movies, television, anything that we're covering. Patreon subscribers get a special access to certain channels for them. Speaking of Patreon, it's our one-year anniversary, and everyone who is subscribed to our Patreon is going to get a lovely thank you gift at the end of July for us to say thank you for one year of podcasting. It's been an amazing ride. So if you're interested in supporting us that way, head over to patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Otherwise, we're going to drop into the conversation with Anthony and I talking about Asteroid City. Here we go. Anthony, thanks for dropping in on Lorehound's one-shots. How you doing? Wouldn't miss it. I'm, I'm doing great. I, cool. uh, I, I think that I, you know, when you mentioned that you might be covering Asteroid City, I kind of jumped at the idea. I'm a huge <laughs> Wes Anderson fan. Uh, what's, what's your history with Old yeah, Wes? Yeah, I've... It, always enjoyed Wes Anderson films. I can't say that I'm a huge devotee, but mm-hmm. I really enjoy and respect what he's done. I was looking today, actually uh, scanning his Wikipedia and looking at the filmography, and he's got 11 films 
yeah. um, feature films. And I counted four of them that I can explicitly remember and hold on to as, yeah, I really like those films. Yeah, yeah. And then there's two I can't remember. I can't remember if I saw Budapest, Grand Budapest Hotel or Royal Tenenbaums. I know I've seen parts of both, but uh-huh. I can't remember if I've seen the entire film or not. Uh-huh. Uh, so I don't know if that's if that says something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums is in my top 10 films of all time. Yeah, it's a huge thing, right? I, I think I, I just... I just kind of didn't see it, and I uh-huh. never made a, a point to go back to see it. Right. I saw it twice in the theater. Um, uh-huh. I My feeling is, uh, like, I saw I did not see Bottle Rocket first. And I think that right. for folks who saw Bottle Rocket first, they fell in love. And that's, you know, your first love is always sort of right. the, the thing that you go back to. I rewatched Bottle Rocket this morning mm-hmm. uh, in preparation for this. And I hadn't seen it in ten years or whatever. It's a it's a really funny and solid movie in doing the kinds of humor without punchlines thing that Wes Anderson has right. really made a career out of. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to be in love with the characters and like note the absurdity of the situation and just really appreciate the context. That's kind of what he's done throughout his whole career. But every now and again, he'll throw in a, you know, sort of a laugh out loud moment. Mm-hmm. For me, most of those are in Royal Tenenbaums. Right. And I love Rushmore and I love Life Aquatic. And then it it kind of goes downhill. Mm-hmm. My friend Steve is a big Moonrise Kingdom guy. And I, and I have seen that movie three or four times and I, I enjoy it. Right. So my wife and I always go every single time he comes out of the new movie, like we are there. We are mm-hmm. absolutely there as you know, first week it's sort of appointment viewing. And if you ask anyone what their top three Wes Anderson movies are, they're probably early Wes Anderson. So anyway, I just feel like these last four or five movies that he's done and you know, they're, they're, I'm not saying that they're bad movies. They're all good movies. They're just not, um, they don't kind of rise to the occasion of the Mm -hmm. early promise, I I suppose I should say. Anyway, so that's sort of my quick take on that. I was looking just now online. So Royal Tannenbaums came out in 2001, and I was living outside the country when it came out. Mm, So that's why I missed it. But I did see Rushmore in the theaters. Okay. That movie, I absolutely adore. Oh, and, fantastic. You know, that's work. my first Wes Anderson love. Yeah, yeah. And my second would be Life Aquatic. Yeah, love Life I think, Aquatic. Uh, fantastic Mr. Fox is probably my number three. Very good, very good. Yeah, I, I feel like if anyone, he's not for everyone. And I think that that may be something that we talk about in more depth, but this is one of those directors that he's kind of an acquired taste. This is not broad humor. Uh, this does not sort of draw a massive audience, and I totally understand people who don't like Wes Anderson. That's, <laughs> right, that it's, he's not for everyone. Right, and but you know, I think that that's for any for any sort of filmmaker who wants to have a distinct voice, not just to kind of put out something that is you know broadly appealing. There, you're going to have people who don't like your films, and mm-hmm. that's totally fine. And I think Wes Anderson. 
is the kind of guy is like, I'm okay if 1% like my films mm-hmm. because I like my films and I'm going to keep making them in this particular style. And so I, and I respect that about him, even if some of his films are a, a bit of a miss for me anyway. Right. How was your theater? How was it uh, very busy? Uh, love, I love this little theater downtown Dayton. It's called the neon. It's sort of like independent theater, you know, like 20, 20 seats. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Uh, you, you know, I, I get a beer there, you know, nice. Yeah. Very cool. Sort of a local craft beer and, uh, you know, sit down and watch movies that, you know, I wouldn't see a Marvel movie there, you know, right. I, I wouldn't yeah, see a yeah, Star yeah. Wars movie yeah. there, but for a Wes Anderson movie, yeah, Perfect. this is like the place to do it. So I was kind of in a great context. I, I was sort of ready to like the movie, had a beer that I knew that I liked. My wife and I sat down and, you know, great seats and the, it, it was, it was a pat, you know, it's, there's only 20 seats there, but it, they were all full of mm-hmm. people who were interested. You know, they were sort of, my age and older right. in general. So it was, it was the good context for a Wes Anderson film. What about you? Yeah. Our theater, we've got a huge center room, which does a lot of community events. And then they've got uh, three smaller little theaters, sort uh-huh. of maybe 60, 50, 60 seats probably. Uh-huh. And I went on a Tuesday night and the theater was, probably half full. It was one of the smaller ones. Uh So there was a good 30, 40 people in there for sure. And people were laughing and having a good time. And there was a real vibe of it's summer. Uh We're family groups and friend groups and, you know, a few solo randos like me. Mm -hmm. And everybody seemed to be there for the same purpose and vibing on the the same thing, which is we're here to see the next installment of the Wes Anderson franchise. Right. And I think people left very satisfied. Is that right? Yeah. I did. Everybody was walking out and sort of buoyant and they were chit chattering and, you know, it caused a little vibration, you know, everybody was like, Oh, no, 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 no. Right. (laughs) So, and, but I also think uh, this, uh, we can maybe talk about our, our personal spoiler free opinions at this stage. Yeah. It, it, it really felt like, to me, the if Wes Anderson was going to make a film about Wes Anderson, then this is the <laughs> film that Wes Anderson made about Wes Anderson, you know? Well, okay. Yeah. No, I think no spoilers in this comment at all. Yeah. I think this movie really hits people who know film history better than people who do not. Interesting. Okay. So, like, what was your experience with Mank? Um, did you see Mank? Trying to see, remember, I thought no, you know, I didn't do it. it, it okay. Was that the one where he's writing in the bathtub? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's okay, sort of then like I did a, see it. I did sort see of it. a black and white homage, yeah. homage slash historical sort of backdrop to the film. Um, I think I watched it on streaming for sure. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, Citizen Kane. So, mm-hmm. I'm not a huge Citizen Kane. Kane Buff, I, I I'm not like I appreciate that movie. It's not my favorite movie. Like I understand it's an important movie for film his, historians, right. yeah, cornerstone, and for people who sort of are are really really deep into film history, that film was revolutionary. It was just right. people loved it. It wasn't for everyone, and it mm-hmm. wasn't trying to be for everyone. 
but for some reason it 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 missed for me or uh, like if you were going to like once upon hollywood tries to do something like this Mm -hmm. and there was just so much uh hollywood history that sort of bleeds into that movie both television and film and that film did work for me so Mm Even if I didn't get all of the television and film references, I, I just absolutely loved it. I feel like this is the kind of film that really is sort of appealing to that 1% of mm-hmm. film history buffs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, I, I like film. I like to know certain things about the history of film, but mostly I just like enjoy, you know, I like enjoying movies. Right. So I, I've never taken a, I, I didn't study film professionally. Right. Uh, I've, I don't read books about films. I, I watch films. <laughs> so <laughs> you watch them and enjoy them. Right. So, yeah. So I guess this, that all is to say that I feel like this movie was not necessarily made for a, a wide or broad audience. I felt, mm-hmm. I feel like I probably would have gotten tenfold more. If I had, if I, if I knew more about film history. Right. Did you find the movie funny or fun? Yeah. Fun for sure. Okay. I don't, I I think I laughed twice and both Mm -hmm. were at Jeffrey Wright for some reason. Okay. (laughs) So like, I just, for some reason that, but otherwise not a lot of laughing, but I did like, I was kind of smiling, smiling through the whole movie. Yeah. Right. That's what I mean. Sort of by fun. Like, Hey, I'm having a good time. This is a, it was a cool thing. Uh, Yeah. I think I laughed out loud maybe two or three times and it was mostly at, you know, set Mm -hmm. decoration stuff or the little signs or those, those little visual gags. I didn't really laugh at the Mm -hmm. actor gags. Right. Yeah. So that's a good, so is, is it, is there room for a movie to be fun and not funny? Yeah. I think, I mean, fun in a very quirky kind of way. It's not like, Mm -hmm. not like you're watching eye candy. I mean, I guess you could say it's a different kind of eye candy. Mm-hmm. These, these films, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was. This was not my favorite Wes Anderson movie, sure. but I, but I did enjoy the experience. Right, right. I think that's. I think that's what maybe a lot of people feel. It's, it's, it's a very. It is atypical Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. and it was fun just to go out to the movies and not be paranoid and worry mm-hmm. about being in a theater and all of that stuff. It's summer. Mm. Yeah, it it really did feel like uh let's go out and enjoy a movie on a Sunday. Now, I do have I th- I think I've I've isolated like what it is that these early films had that this didn't, but I feel like I should probably save that for spoilers. Save that for the after. Yeah. Uh visually, are you do you enjoy the visual aspects? I mean, this movie was hyper color and the framing mm. and all of that sort of film. It felt like if you were a film or TV maker that this was a fun experience to mm. to enjoy, or if you're a photography or you know visually mm-hmm. referenced in any way, I felt very stimulated by this mm. movie on that, mm-hmm. on that scale. Not so much for me. Like I kind of feel like like I feel like I've seen these tricks before, and it's not like for some reason the like I could see the all of Star Wars tricks over and over again, and I'm totally cool with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've seen all those tricks too, right? <laughs> Plenty, of <laughs> but times. I'm I'm in. You know, just right. just tell me where to show up. I think that the tricks would work better if I understood the stakes of the story a little bit better. Like I mm-hmm. I, I can't. I, 
I need something more than just the window dressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I maybe yeah. I, I don't know if I want to say more at this point. Sure. Should we jump into spoilers? We can. I have one one kind of I guess final question uh-huh. or discussion point is: Is his style overrated? Has he played himself out? Are we gonna? Is he gonna pivot from here? I wonder. Like. I walked out going, okay, that if I hadn't seen any other Wes Anderson movie in my entire life, yeah, I, I feel like I understand Wes Anderson with this one film. Yeah. Are we gonna see something new? Is he done? Is he got more to say? Is he I don't think he's I mean he's say? given how much given how often he produces films, I don't think that he's done. I I think that I I don't think he's played it out. I, I think he, I think that style goes so far. Mm-hmm. So you you have to have something new to say, right? If he comes up with something new to say, then I'm I'm in, right? I mean, let let me be honest. I'm in no matter what. I'm in for every Wes Anderson film. <laughs> nice. Okay. Cool. I will show up. I'll pay money. I'll buy a beer or whatever. I I do I do kind of miss those early films that were kind of had like surprising moments. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like this film had any any moment that really surprised me or delighted me. I agree. Even when certain things happened, (laughs) it was, it wasn't that surprising. I was like, Oh, okay. That's a very Wes Anderson thing thing to do in this Uh particular moment at this crisis juncture of the story. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I, I have, I have something that I am, I'm biting my tongue because I don't want to say it. Okay. Well, spoiler <laughs> sounds good. Well, so let's take a quick trying break to talk then. around it a little bit. Sounds good. Well, let's take a quick break, and then uh-huh. uh, when we come back, we can get into the spoiler stuff. Okay, and we're back. Anthony, you were biting your tongue when we uh, <laughs> yes. were last. What what is it that is burning? So I rewatched Bottle Rocket this morning. Yeah. Loved it. Mm-hmm. Start to finish. I already expressed my undying devotion to uh, Royal Time Bombs. And then, you know, you throw in Rushmore in, in that pile, too. Mm-hmm. Those movies all had the Wes Anderson tone. Mm-hmm. I also cared deeply for the characters. Yeah. This movie, to me, lacked emotionality Mm -hmm. and i'm thinking back to like those early movies like dignan's i really cared that dignan's heart was broken and in bottle rocket or i really cared that uh, ben stiller's told his father in the end that he has had a hard year like Mm -hmm. i really cared you know i cared for the the rushmore's heartbreak and sort of sense of loss and Mm you know, spinning your wheels or even, you know, even sort of to a lesser extent, the Zizu character, the fact that he's looking back on a a misspent career or Wes Anderson looking for a father figure like these, these characters were desperate. It, they, mm. they, those movies carried a sense of emotionality. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the last four or five movies, like this is quirky. This is fun. Big ensemble. These, yeah. Big ensemble. I'm having fun. Do I care about any of these? Uh, do I care about the emotional experience of any of these characters? Mm-hmm. 
And the answer is kind of no. Like, I don't feel like in this in this film, Asteroid City, I don't feel like any character brought me into what they are fe- they are feeling. Mm-hmm. There's this line in the film that uh, Scarlett Johansson says. She says, "We are two catastrophically wounded people who don't express the depths of our pain because we don't want to." And I'm thinking clear thesis statement there. I, yeah, I can see that you're trying to do that with this film. Guess what? I need, I need, I need you to show me. I don't want that show. Don't tell me that. I feel like. Right. Right. I, but I want to be invested in you. I want, yeah, I I want there to be more. I I mean, I want to, I want to feel something in a movie. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess that's sort of my the thing that I most wanted to say about this film is that I feel like it lacked emotionality. And if right. it was on purpose, that's fine, but then you just kind of robbed me of of a movie-going experience in that way. So, that that, w- that was my sense. What what do you think about that? I don't disagree. I think there was a lot going on on screen with a lot of big name stars popping up here and there. And that's always sort of a distraction. Oh, you know, what is mm-hmm. Tom Hanks going to do? Oh, right. what is um, the guy who is the hotel manager? Oh, Steve uh, Carell. Yeah, Steve Carell. Oh, Steve Carell's here. Uh, right, you know, right. oh, oh, there's an alien played by, you know, uh, Jeff Goldblum. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And, and so it's constantly who's going to pop up next. And visually... It was a lot. And then, you know, we switched to black and white mm-hmm. and then we switched back to hypercolor. And it, so that was all dazzling. And yet with Jason Schwartzman's characters and Scarlett Johansson's characters, I didn't feel anything for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't feel for their romance. I didn't feel for their um, struggling to find themselves. Uh, I felt maybe more for the three little girls. Than I did for for yeah they were just pretty because... funny but they were like not part they were not integral to the film like they were no. sort of like just kind of uh, sort of a side plot and you know they lost their mother and yeah. their father hid it from them and it's, that that's it's rough kind of a big deal <laughs> yeah and uh, that your mother died and then your father pretended to, to hide it from you and then was planning to desert you but then it's decided against it mm-hmm. i could I kind of getting a little bit of royal tenenbaum's vibe there but it didn't quite land right anyway i might be missing you know i like i said not being sort of enough of a film buff uh i might be missing a grand point here mm. but i need at least one character in the film to kind of i thought draw for me a in. while that adrian something. Brody's character was going to draw me in mm. the the stage director. He was just a really great visual element and an acting element. I really mm. resonated with the, his performance that he was laying down. And then I got really interested between Jason Schwartzman and Ed Norton and mm. this yeah. you know romance between actor and playwright. Mm-hmm. But those were those frames within a frame within a frame. Yeah. And I never felt that I could every time we were moving sort of in a twilight zone, moving through the mirrors to the next level, we sort of he shifted us out again. Yeah. 
and I never felt that I got the the depth. And, and so there were elements there. There were characters there that I wanted to empathize and connect to. But then right. it, it it was always taken away at me at, at, from some stage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like uh, with this film, it was almost it, it did it did kind of give you the sense of a um, it was almost it almost carried the sense of a local theater with all actors that you've seen before in different roles. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just kind of like very much so. I I really I really kind of think it's kind of cool to you know see Brian Cranston on the screen. Yeah. You know, or hey, hey, I remember that guy from the other film and I loved him in the other film, but I never I I never stopped thinking about the previous films or the, the, no actor kind of drew me into it such an extent that I wasn't like thinking of the office when I saw Steve Carell or I exactly. wasn't, exactly. you know, thinking of Rushmore when I saw Jason Schwartzman or, you know, I into went the, the spider verse or whatever. Right. With Jeffrey Wright, uh, you know, it was like, Oh, Westworld. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Every single one of these characters was um, superficial to the extent that you, you liked them because of their other work. And all of their performances were exceptional and exceptional <laughs> within the Wes Anderson genre. Uh-huh. Ed Norton, I, I I lost him for for Ed Nortonness, right? He, I really okay. felt his his character. All right, but I was still watching Ed Norton in a <laughs> Wes Anderson film, and I I knew that I could never escape that right, right, right. Um, that even the, within the performances. So let's talk about the framing a bit because I think it's kind of hard to understand the plot without seeing the kind of, you know, frame within a frame, within a frame, within a frame. Yep. So I I think it literally went that deep too. Yes, that's right. (laughs) That's right. So it's sort of like sort of a black and white television show opening and the black and white television show is purporting to tell the story of a play that was written. Yep. And then you see Edward Norton behind a typewriter and then you see what happens once that script becomes a play, right? Yep. And then, of course, within all of that, uh, you have the you have like the characters breaking all the walls, right? Not just right. the fourth wall, but like you know the seventh wall, right? So moving between the documentary TV yes. show into the play, into the playwright's right. life, and yeah. That's right. So, and then back out to the movie, I guess. Right, it was, right, right. Was, yeah, which yeah. is what our primary visual. Which is not on. I mean, it's not. It's not like Wes Anderson hasn't done this before. Like if you like for folks who've seen T- Royal Tenenbaums, you've got that storybook thing where you actually mm-hmm. have the cartoons of the the characters, and it it opens up like a family album, and then it closes at the end. You, and right. you've got the Alec Baldwin narration overlaid. So it's not like that hasn't been done in in his films before. But I almost felt like as soon as I was sort of starting to care about one of the frames, we would move to an entirely different set. And mm-hmm. within the frame, uh, it was it was sort of difficult to kind of grasp onto the storyline within the storyline. And I and I did want I did want to. Mm-hmm. I did want to care about the child prodigies. So right. anyway, if you really if if you want to sort of within that basic framework, the thing that is most framed 
that gets the most West Anderson, you know, color palette is basically this, this science camp funded by the U.S. military for young, innovative, you know, prodigies. Right. And then they all congregate around this little village called Asteroid City, which is a tourist attraction featuring this little meteorite that landed long ago enough that that Steve Carell's character can kind of set up a little motel city and have vending machines to exploit, you know, the people who are staying there. Which were great. I loved the vending machine gag. Right. That was part of my fun. And those were some of the things that I actually laughed out loud. Right, over. right, right. Anderson really loves this. He, he really loves sort of well-crafted architecture and mechanics that fit into tiny little spaces. Mm-hmm. And this is why he likes dollhouses and he likes trains because, you know, you can toy kind of, trains, mm-hmm. toy trains are sort of like, you yeah. know, the, the, the dumb waiter of a hotel, you know, right. things that are sort <laughs> of like really small that are designed for a specific purpose. And he, he, he really, for some reason, he loves to feature these in, in almost all of his films. I can think of um, in Life Aquatic and in Fantastic Mr. Fox, we get great cutaways. Yes. And animated little sequences and these little miniatures. Of yeah. It. And we're like, oh, I want to go inside of that. I want to be yeah. inside that sub or I want to be inside that, you know, house. Yeah. yeah. A, a ship, you know, a ship or a submarine. These are perfect settings for that kind of dollhouse. Yeah. Uh, mechanic, you know, there's a, there's a certain lever here that's designed only for this little machine, and he really wants to feature this. So the vending machines are kind of perfect mm-hmm. for th- for that kind of thing. So that was that was super fun. And then the idea that you can buy a plot of land, you, know? <laughs> you, can, you could buy a plot of desert. Well, you know, a D a D will just pop right out the old vending machine, and now. You, you kind of own it, but you kind of don't own it, you know, because. Um, well, and it's it it made me very much think of Americana in a lot of ways mm-hmm. in the West and in that Route 66 and, the mm-hmm. you know, stop on the way. And, and it reaches back to Gold Rush and Settlers. Yeah. And here's this wide open expanse, which is not really wide open. It, it already belonged to somebody sort of, uh, you know, and, but here we are. We're going to claim it and we're going to give you a deed and we're going to draw some things out in the dirt. And yeah. it's yours. Yeah, it's sort of this um, like he does play a lot with nostalgia mm-hmm. and it's usually nostalgia of the recent past. Someone's right. recent past. It's sort of a self-aware as nostalgia very, sort of like very. in this film is sort of like, yeah, everything's kind of soda jerk 1950s mm-hmm. innocence. But then like what, like five miles from the cafe, you've got nuclear bombs going off because there's nuclear bomb testing right happening. <laughs> they just sort of pop their heads out the windows and go, right. oh, another test going up. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I, I do remember duck and cover and, and right. uh, you know, these sort of things. I, I mean, Growing up in the '80s, we had our plan. If you know the the, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and and we were like, okay, are we first strike? Okay, yeah, we're a first strike city because we have a deep water port and blah blah blah. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and so okay, so you are gonna meet me on this corner. You're gonna hijack the number fourteen bus, and then we're gonna go down to uh-huh. our hangout downtown. We're all gonna meet. <laughs> we had plans for nuclear, right. you know, ar- Armageddon. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and and you know, so there is sort of that innocence innocent and nostalgic look at a recent past, but he's also very aware that 
masculinity was really stunted. Like the, the emotional, the emotional capacity of a father. Right. In it was, it was shit in the 1950s. (laughs) John and I were just talking about this on our second breakfast, uh, Patreon podcast the other Uh day about fatherhood and, and being fathers and what we do now is not at all the same. My, I don't think my father ever changed my diaper. I changed tons of diapers. You know, I took, I I was the flex parent for a long time and took Mm -hmm. care of our daughter, uh, for a lot of her infant stage. So that is an entirely different realm of existence. And then it's uh, geographically, it's sort of interesting because Wes Anderson sort of interest, what are his settings? His settings are sort of like, like imaginary New York or Texas. And this, you know, here we are sort of in the, I think he's what, from Texas, right? The, yeah, the Nevada desert or the mm-hmm. Arizona desert or something like that. So it and then was, of course, we had the Road Runner, which is right. Bugs Bunny and the Road. I mean, I watched a lot of that cartoon. Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, so that felt very exactly. familiar in that nostalgia, in that winking nostalgia. Right, uh, right, right. So you've got that. I mean, that, that's sort of an interesting part of this. You know, you think of the amount of fathers that he includes in his films like um like gene hackman as royal tenenbaum or Mm -hmm. bill murray as uh, steve zizou in this bill murray again in rushmore yeah yeah right so i think in this film i it was supposed to be tom hanks right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like um it's wes anderson it it's tom hanks what could go wrong (laughs) <laughs> you know he's gonna play right uh, you know an emotionally uh stunted you know too blunt father uh yeah sign me up absolutely i want to see it mm-hmm. and yet it's sort of like in the royal tenant bombs or steve zizu you you hang the entire story around that character yep that's that's a that's a legit movie star you have in this film yep. tom yep. hanks i would love to see him in a film like this and yet he's kind of like just how is it like five minutes of the film? It's, we it's got not a lot. Very little. Just the stuff around his daughter and yeah. his granddaughters, and he, he didn't like his stepson. And oh, you were gonna abandon your kids with me, but now you're not. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's sort of like wow. It was what a very missed opportunity. Super, super what really. a missed opportunity. I mean, this was sort of a perfect role for uh, Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. You know, there's sort of that scene in the in the phone booth where he's like, Swartzman says something like, you didn't like me. And he said, I don't know if I didn't like you. I didn't love you. You know, sort of that, <laughs> that, you get that scene. That's a really funny line for it a is. father to tell a son or whatever, but uh, or a son-in-law, I guess. Yeah. I yeah. But give give me give me more Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, come on. So anyway, I, I yeah, I kind of feel like that was a bit of a missed opportunity there. And I think this is where the film suffered a little bit with the totality of its cast. Yeah. Because how how do you not give you know, if you're taking if you're giving Tom Hanks more time, then you're giving Tilda Swinton less time, which means Ed Norton, you know, it's it's a it's one of those yeah. banquet dinners where it's a finely tuned thing who's sitting on what table and if one person mm-hmm. moves or changes then you suddenly upend the whole yeah. dynamic so and i don't how does wes anderson he puts out a call i'm making a film and uh-huh. it's a thing now to flock to his yeah casting calls 
Oh, there. Yeah, if if you want, there, there are no there are no small parts <laughs> no. in the Wes Anderson film. I mean, I guess there are. It's just that you get enormous actors to play these small parts. Um, yeah, I I think for people that for people that sort of love films, they kind of know that they're going to get a particular sort of playground right. with him. Yeah. Right. And they're like, I've always enjoyed the play boxes that, you know, the sandboxes that you make. And I've always enjoyed watching these. And I've always you know, felt like if I could ever play in that play box or sandbox, I would absolutely do it. And so, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, if, if Wes Anderson wanted me to be in one of his movies, I would absolutely do it just because, it, <laughs> because it's, that's yeah. it. It's just the, the name itself, Wes Anderson's agent is calling you, you know, yeah. or, or, or casting director is calling you. So you I, I imagine yes. that that's why, I mean, he, because he's it's his own Anderson. gravity. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. I almost wish that was a little bit less of the case. I, right? I, yeah. Because when I'm looking at this cast list, William Defoe. Yeah. Hong Chow, Liv Schreiber, Rita Wilson, yeah, uh, uh, Steve Park, uh, Brian Cranston, <laughs> Matt Dillon. It's yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah, right. I even forgot Matt Dillon was in the in this thing. Yeah. So yeah, so it's one of these things where it's like, of course I love it. Of course I love it. But I almost feel like I wanted this to be like, like what? What if this was a a television show? Mm. And, and stretched out over a and it's, season. And, you, and Wes Anderson had 13 hours to tell this story. Mm. I would, I would kind of like this would be a wonderful ensemble cast mm-hmm. in the in the same way that the Bear is the season two of the Bear is. Right? Did you enjoy the Bear? Oh, I love loved it. My wife and I loved uh, both seasons. But it, it's one of these things where it's like Tom Hanks kind of needs an entire. He he needs. He needs an entire film. There's an arc there. There's a, and there's a mul- you could yeah. say the same thing for Jeffrey Wright, right? Right. <laughs> he's he's amazing, and he needs a and Scarlett Johansson and Jason Schwartzman, and you know you could just go down the line. Each one of these people need an episode to themselves. It feels like. So Wes, yeah, make make a television show. We we would love it. <laughs> We'd cover it. We'd podcast about it. No doubt. <laughs> Uh, one one thing of the film that I really felt was missing. Wes Anderson loves, just loves to include child prodigies in his films. Yeah, yeah, it's a and I strong... don't feel like I knew or cared about any of these child prodigies. They just were doing their child prodigy, child prodiginess projects, right? That's what I felt. I didn't care about like a couple of them fall in love. I don't. It was it was like. Along the storylines, it was probably the 13th most important storyline was that, you know, these two kids fall in love. Mm. And, you know, he in other films, he's devoted an entire film to that idea. Yeah. Or to explore what it means to be a gifted or or to be a a kid who has a particular insight or a particular talent. And Mm. what's the weight of that? And what is the impact of that? And how... Mm. I go back to Rushmore and, and thinking about Max mm-hmm. and all his different talents. And that was a crushing weight around all yeah. of Max's people. Exactly. And so he's, as he's trying to discover himself in the world that messes with a lot of people. And in this, 
there was no impact for these child for the brilliance of these kids. Yeah, you didn't. Well, care. except maybe for Liv Schreiber's dad, who was like, "Stop telling, you know, stop mm. daring, you know, stop asking us if you if <laughs> was, you you know if we dare pretty, you to do X Y." Yeah, that was pretty funny. I, I'll, I'll give that. Otherwise, I, yeah. I really didn't care about the children at all, and mm. it's kind of an unfortunate thing. Same thing for Tilda Swinton. You know, he likes to include kind of a quirky scientist in most of his films. Mm -hmm. That was kind of subpar for me. I didn't feel like that character was fleshed out. That That's sort of my, it was my sense of a big part of this movie uh, was that most of the characters who were at the camp for, you know, young scientists were not interesting. Right. So unfor unfortunately, that kind of fell flat. What did you make of the whole alien uh, crisis, you know, that, that mm. sort of brings things to a head? Was was there any point to that beyond um, <laughs> the universe is a strange me, and wild place? Yeah, yeah. For me, it was sort of like, you know, he likes to sometimes include like like an encounter with the 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 unknown to and to spur things forward or to yeah to right go it's sort of action. like um when steve zazu sort of after this this shark right right, right yeah the um, the jaguar shark or... yeah the jaguar shark it's sort of you need it to kind of kick off the adventure mm -hmm. right and that's sort of like what happens with this this group at the camp like they're they're sequestered by the you know the the u.s government the u.s mm -hmm. military but other than sort of like showing up and like taking a, a photo, you know, for posterity, it, it really didn't serve any like it didn't really change anyone's life. No, <laughs> uh, it was just kind of, oh, yeah, that's that's fun. You know, we need a we needed some kind of encounter with the unknown to sort of check right. the box. And then to to encapsulate our characters so that they could have some sort of catharsis because they're constrained. That there's a compression right. from the outside to mm -hmm. sort of transmute them into mm -hmm. a different mineral or, you know, to, right. to change Yeah, that's form. right. And then it kind of just dissipates. Yeah. You know? And then it was sort just of sort of Swartzman's family wakes up and gone. they're gone. <laughs> and it's sort of like, I don't know. I don't know if, if that's a statement about sort of the loss of innocence or something along those lines. Now, there's a scene I wanted to ask you about. There's a scene where you're kind of in the studio audience mm -hmm. and it's in, it's black and white. Yep. And the actors and the audience and the director all start chanting. You can't wake up unless you first fall asleep or something. along mm, those lines. Right. Right. What when the show you, gets this weird mystical. What, what did you thing? make of that? I, I'm not, I'm not really sure what to do with that, but I, sense. Yeah, I was w scratching my head and that's around the time when I was there was another line that somebody said something to the effect of don't don't try to interpret this just kind of go with it. I forget okay. the exact line. Uh -huh. And so sort of that paired with the, the 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 nesting doll nature of it and then this thing the only way that I could in make sense of it was that it has something to do with that childhood innocence that auteur filmmaker sensibility that if we're going to dream these things and we're going to live mm. these larger than life uh, experiences and and 
do amazing things, then we need to be able to dream, but we have to mm. sleep and dream and, and the transition and the boundary between the two. You can't have a dream unless you're asleep. So I, I, I don't have a specific answer or mm. meaning, but I'm putting it in the, in the same room as those thoughts. Yeah. Okay. That, that there's some sort of space between imagination and mm-hmm. spirit and lived experience. And when we let go, there's this magical realism. I mean, it's almost like yeah. Wes Anderson has his own magical realism genre. Yeah, I think right? you're right about that. I know it could be that I'm missing sort of an homage to, you know, sort of a... Could be. We could totally be missing that. You know, some, something from like the history of Broadway or something like that. Completely. I could easily be missing that. I did, you know, sort of the, the best that I could come up with was the sort of a metaphor for life and death being asleep and awake. And, you know, surely death is a major theme in this film. So anyway, I, 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 I'm not sure what else to make of it. And I think that's part of what he was saying to us is that there are these mysteries in, in, in life and, and live it, but don't necessarily, I don't know, not, not, uh, some level of analysis, which is not going to pr- produce any different results for you, mm-hmm. unless you're a philosopher, <laughs> you know, or a or a theologian, maybe. Um, well, and I'm not sure that I mean, and it could be that he was sort of doing something intentionally opaque. Sure, right? it's, sure, it's, it's possible that he, you know, he's like, well, it's up to you to figure out what this means. Uh, so, I mean, that's not beyond him to do that. But no, I do appreciate. Um, I guess I, I don't appreciate those moments as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think of whether he's broken the fourth wall in previous films, and I don't remember that happening. I don't. I, I, uh, of the films that I can recall seeing, mm-hmm. I don't feel like he's done that. Yeah. It's all been very in, in interior focused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. so we might be missing a a key example or whatever, but mm. I, if you're going to break the fourth wall, you got to feel pretty good about the, the effect that it's going to have on the audience. Right. And what your, yeah, your intention of doing that. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then they were breaking the fourth walls, as you said, I think earlier in the podcast between the performances. So there was the balcony yeah, between scene. frames, right? Yeah. Where I, was it Margot Robbie and, Adrian or no, uh, Jason Schwartzman. They went uh-huh. out on the balconies for the cigarette breaks. And, That's right. You know, so they were breaking the walls sort of in there in, in, in a way. Well, and, you know, eventually Schwartzman goes and asks the playwright, like, am I am I doing this right? Mm-hmm. Or does he ask the director? I forget who he asks. Oof, like, am, we'll I, see the- am I playing this well enough? That kind mm-hmm. of thing. Previous in the film, you got the playwright talking to a potential love interest you know, talking about like, why does he put his hand on the burner? Right. It's sort of like talking about like, oh, I like your, I like your interpretation better than mine. So it's almost like almost playing with the idea of the death of the author. Like it doesn't really matter what the author thinks because, because the, a better interpretation may be from an audience member. And of course you don't know that one of the characters will eventually do that. Uh, so there's a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of meta commentary happening there. I think. What do you think about uh, well talking about his style um, and this absurdism 
uh, and this reduction to <laughs> essences and to yeah. simple truths through this absurdist uh, framing. Mm-hmm. I think you'd put something like that along in your notes earlier, yeah. and I that intrigued me because that's that is a very hallmark. Yeah, that is a hallmark of Wes Anderson. That's what I expect from Wes Anderson. Right, is to be ridiculous, but when you in the ridiculousness, bring me to a truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I usually when a film doesn't have subtext, it's it's just a it's kind of a boring film, right? So. Yeah. It's like oatmeal without a little maple syrup or butter in it or something. (laughs) You're just like, okay, it's nutritious, but... uh... So if you have a father saying something like, it's not that I didn't like you, I just didn't love you, that kind of thing. (laughs) That's a a punchy line. It's one of these things that usually people don't say out loud, right? <laughs> you know, and it's and it, yeah. and it cuts right to the point. Like no one in the in a Wes Anderson film will ever say um or stutter or you know. It's like everyone is got punchy dialogue at the ready. Yeah, and uh, you know, sort of like it works like a nineteen fifties film for in that way, right? Mm-hmm. And with a with usually some sort of a flat affect, uh-huh. right? With a flat with, affect, with- uh huh. And uh, and the person who's sort of receiving, you know, horrific information like your mother's dead, you know, they're not going to respond with emotionality or whatever. And I kind of feel like, yes, of course, that's what Wes Anderson does best. But that's not what makes his movies work. Mm -hmm. Because if you think back to these other movies from, you know, the first four or five movies that he's made, there's at least one or two characters that is tragic and plays it like like a realist tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who's really going to cry when their dog gets hit by a car or mm-hmm. someone someone who really is going to feel depressed at the at unrequited love or someone who's going to commit suicide or something like that. So these are these are moments in his films that are not reductionist, that are not absurdist and they kind of are even more poignant because they're set against that backdrop. Yeah. So I feel like yeah. this film was almost all backdrop. Mm-hmm. There was no one character in the film that wasn't the reduction, wasn't the absurd, you know, at dialogue at the ready kind of person. Would you, I mean, obviously Jason Schwartzman playing Augie Steinbeck, Steinbeck, Stenbeck, uh, Steinbeck, uh, yeah. <laughs> Steinbeck was, I think, supposed to be that for us but because he's in all of the frames right he's in from Mm. the play to the television drama he kind of reads as main character right yeah but we never never i don't ever feel like i fell for his struggle yeah i never he did did not struggle he did Mm -mm. not struggle Mm -mm. he was he he you know he floated through it he floated through it at the end of it you don't you had a good time and you didn't really care about him at the end. Right. At least that was my experience. So And and nothing about him was ever he never had to challenge. He he didn't have to grapple with the, his daughters uh in the the loss of their mother or face the disapproval of his father-in-law or the death a real death of his Well, it was uh, that every single every single thing was played for a laugh. Mhm. Exactly. So you but he, but with a comedy you can't only have laughs. Right. I mean, I mean, I guess you could if you're National Lampoons or whatever, but this isn't that kind of film. It's got to be offset against the, the it, drama. It has the to states. have 
it has to have a a character yeah who experiences joy at the end or experience a lot you know some kind of you, you think of your best comedy and there think of your favorite what's your favorite comedy oh boy i don't uh <laughs> it put me on the spot i i don't i can't think of one i don't know caddyshack call it caddyshack. okay cat all right all right great all right so that's what came to mind I'll, sure we'll, we'll yeah yeah no i i was just thinking like Big Lebowski for whatever oh, reason. Oh, so good. Great movie. Uh, it's that's like, a, that is top. It, it's very top similar comedy. in tone. Mm-hmm. But I'm drawn in. Like I like I would just follow the dude anywhere, right? I just yeah. want to see the dude and Walter just argue about life on any topic. Mm-hmm. I, I'm in. I, I'm totally in. This this movie did not do that for me. No. So anyway. Well, I think uh, that probably wraps it up for Asteroid City. Happy to have spent the ticket yeah. price and had I a, a sh- lovely yeah, I think, night out. I, I think I ought to reiterate that this is not a bad movie. It's uh, it, in comparison with some of Wes Anderson's earlier movies. It doesn't really live up to those. But in general, I enjoyed the experience. Um I think I sort of leaned in the, into the negativity. Here. Well, we're doing our our critique, uh, you know, and that's mm-hmm. we're gonna we're that's what we're here for is to to lift up the on the covers of these things. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's for me, it's part of the fun of the experience too to think yeah. deeper about it. Like, well, okay, was he was there something there? Did I miss something? So yeah, uh, right. I think it's all yeah. fair. I I had a yeah, I enjoyed going out to seeing the movie. I thought it was a good experience, and I'm I was glad to put my ten bucks down. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate yeah. it. I love talking Wes Anderson. I, I, I can't wait for you to watch the Royal Tenenbaums. I may have to throw it on my time. list. <laughs> yeah, like in my aware, in my awakened estate. Are you gonna? Oh, are you gonna wait another twenty years and make it an old man movie? Uh, possibly. <laughs> uh, very, very possibly. We could right. maybe John. Maybe John can actually put a list of uh, yeah for his next movies in, in another twenty years. Sounds we can good. make it an old man movie. Well, I well I've got you here. Old men. Speaking of awakenings, um, what have you guys got going on? Because properly, Howard is yeah. in full swing. So uh, about mid-August, uh, what White Man Can't Jump, the the most recent Jack Harlow joint. Okay, have you watched it? Oh, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm really interested to hear your opinions. When so the Steve and I both out. watched it, we recorded that podcast. One of us liked it, one of us didn't. Steve was on fire during Howard the Duck, so <laughs> I I really want to hear him throwing some darts. Uh, then then after that, that's I think August 14th. Yeah, and a week after that, we do our big Dune podcast for the 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 part one. Yeah. Of uh, the the most recent Dune. Uh, this next season that Steve and I are doing, we're doing all movies that are remakes. Right. So yeah, so we we've got. I, I guess we talk about what movies we're going to cover in our at the end of our Howard the Duck episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your draft was fun. That was a good little. So yeah, so there's a, a you know there's a, there's a number of films. That I can't remember right now, but I know that the first two are White Man Can't Jump and Dune. Right. And uh, you've got uh, Bukaloo still rolling over on. Uh, Absolutely. We're That's still going we're, strong. We're loving sort of the early stages of Arya's turn to darkness. Mm-hmm. You had and your sister Tyrion. on. Tyrion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tara That's was fun. always great to talk to about that. 
Tyrion is sort of at peak Tyrion mode with all of his machinations in the city going head to head against, you know, Cersei and Littlefinger. And, you know, can you trust Ferris? He's trying to figure that out. And then, you know, John is sort of approaching Craster's keep. So, you know, high drama over Electric Bukaloo. Great. Well, it was good to have you on One Shots. And again, you know, any you, it's an open invitation to uh, any show or movie that you feel so moved, you know. Yeah. The, yeah, we'll the, that's what soon. this format is is for, you know. Yeah, fantastic. Are right. you going to do yeah. the Barbenheimer? <laughs> I would like to watch Al Oppenheimer. Okay. A lot. And my wife would like to watch Barbie a lot. (laughs) I do not think that we're going to see those on the same day. Okay. I can almost guarantee you we're not going to see those on the same day. Well, I'm trying to get the, I'm trying to get the, the Lorehound family, uh, assembled so that we can do a Barbenheimer kind of conversation. (laughs) So if you uh, are for sure seeing one or the other, it does sound like something Steve would want to do. I, I probably, probably need to, not do that Obligating. just for my own mental health. <laughs> like if, if if you're interested in watching those those movies back to back, well, well, let me ask you this: Which one are you going to watch first? I don't know that I'm going to see both, but our podcast. I think the podcast I'm trying to do is tr- is to collect people. Like, not everybody has to see uh-huh. both of them. I think we can. Oh, uh-huh. you know, these two people saw Oppenheimer. This person uh-huh. saw Barbie. This saw this person saw both. Mm-hmm. We can kind of collectively work it out. I am interested in seeing Oppenheimer. I'm interested in seeing what Nolan is going to get up to with a mm-hmm. historic story. Yeah, yeah. There's a Na- Ridley Scott Napoleon movies coming out this later later this year, so I'm really interested in seeing that. So, you know, I'm I I'm, I'm into the the history films. So, are you that are saying that you year. are you are going to host this podcast and not see Barbie? Is that what you're saying? I haven't decided yet where my particular thing is. I'm going to host the party and whoever has seen one, both uh-huh. or the other uh, are mm-hmm. welcome to join the party. Malpractice. <laughs> <laughs> we want a, Podcast we want a verbal commitment right now. <laughs> Alicia is going to see. <laughs> of course both. she She's is. Gotta... <laughs> she can't talk to herself the whole time. Come on. You got to see. Bar- if you're going to host this, we want right, your verbal commitment right now. Okay, I will. I will see it. I will see it. Now, here's my recommendation. Yeah, Christopher Nolan can't write a third act. This has been established, and so what you're going to do is you're going to go through the first hour and fifteen minutes of Oppenheimer, walk out, and then start Barbie at at that point. So do you think that's that's the proper order? Is yes, Barbie's the third act to the Mm -hmm. Oppenheimer. Okay. That sounds like an interesting recipe. I like my that is my suggestion. All right, fabulous. Well, Anthony, thanks again, everyone. uh, Go check out properly Howard film reviews. We're looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to the Dune conversation. So yeah, yeah, that'll be fun. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, man. All right. Well, that was a cool conversation. I always have a great time talking with Anthony. Always great insights and and things to uh, new ideas to kick around and stuff. So. Definitely check out Properly Howard Film Reviews over on their feed. As we said, we're going to be doing a a crossover with them for the uh, Dune Part 1 movie as well. This is the part of the podcast where we say thank you to our Patreon subscribers. So to Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H., Michael G., Michelle E., David W., Brian P., Nick W., SC, Peter O.H., Bettina W., 
Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, Duve 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H, Sarah L, Gareth C, Eric F, Matthew M, Sarah M, DJ Miwa, Joyce E, Andra B, and Deadeye Jedi Bob, our newest lore master. Thank you all so very much. Thank you for your support. Thank you for a wonderful year of podcasting from us. And to all our Patreon subscribers, we really couldn't do this without you. A couple of quick programming notes. Check out Alicia over on the Wool Shift Dust podcast. She's going to have an interview with the showrunner and writer of the books. So that's going to be coming out. And then she's going to roll over into a book club on her Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com, Wool Shift Dust, she's going to have a whole book club thing rolling over there. She's got some more stuff in the works, so keep your eyes and ears out, and we'll let you know what's going on. For the rest of July, we are continuing to cover Secret Invasion. We're about halfway through with that. We've got Foundation Season 2 about to start up, and we'll be John and I will be covering that in full uh, once that gets rolling. We've got an Ahsoka prep series coming up towards the end of the month. That's to get ready for the live action show that's coming next month. We still have Book Nook with The Farthest Shore Part 2 and The Silmarillion Story. We're going to have Marilyn on that podcast. We're going to be talking about uh, Flight of the Noldor. So yeah, lots of good stuff coming from us for the rest of July. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next podcast. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.